Hi, I'm Scott David Chase. This is for the Love of Film podcast. I'm going to talk about six movies that I saw this week. Um, I saw Dark Phoenix, which is the latest uh, X-Men film. I saw The Dead Don't Die, Jim Jarmusch's new zombie... I don't want to call it a parody or comedy, but it's sort of like that. It's a bright burn. Uh, and then I watched another film in the River Phoenix filmography, Stand By Me. And then I watched a couple Disney classics. Uh, and I used the classics in the with an uppercase C because that's how Disney qualifies them. I wouldn't necessarily call either of these classics. One of them certainly more than the other, but I watched The Rescuers and then The Rescuers Down Under. Um, the the two Disney movies and Stand By Me I watched on home video because uh, they're older films, obviously. Um, or maybe not, obviously, if you're not familiar with them. But So, um, first thing, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm just going to go in order that I just said them, I guess. Uh, I did watch Dark Phoenix yesterday. Um, this was a film that, uh, you know, I, I, I had an interesting, uh, kind of journey with it. This is the 12th film in 20th Century Fox's X-Men film series, franchise, what have you. Um, there will be one more coming out Next year in 2020, which is the New Mutants, and um, uh, I'm not going to bother touching on that. I'll talk about that when it comes out, but because there was speculation whether or not it would come out or not, because um, after this film and the New Mutants were completed, but before they were released, Disney acquired 20th Century Fox, and so the X-Men... Uh, for those of you who don't know, are part of the Marvel Universe, but up until this point have not been part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So there's been much speculation about when Marvel will incorporate the X-Men into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and they are going to do it at some point. But um, they don't do it with this film, but um, they did announce shortly before Dark Phoenix came out, that this will conclude the main X-Men franchise. You know, the New Mutants is going to come out as well, but that actually doesn't... It's not about the X-Men team, per se. It's about another group of mutants, another team of mutants. Um, So, this was originally intended to start another another trilogy of X-Men films, but it ended up being the last. So this is the, uh, this is the fourth and final film where, uh, James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender portrayed Charles Xavier and, uh, Magneto respectively. Um, Jennifer Lawrence also portrayed Mystique in all four of the last films. And, uh, I believe Nicholas Holt played, uh, Hank McCoy, the beast in all four of them as well. They all returned in this one. Um, you know, it started with 
X-Men Days of Futures Past, I'm sorry, not Days of Futures Past, X-Men First Class, which took place in the 60s, and then uh, Days of Futures Past, which is a is a time hop a film which combines uh, this cast with the original cast of X-Men X2 and X-Men United, um, and then... Uh, two years ago, X-Men Apocalypse, which took place in the 80s. Um, and then this one takes place in 1992. So, uh, you know, the X-Men series has been a mixed bag. There's been some that are fantastic. There's been some that have not. And, uh, you know, the first X-Men movie, sort of uh, in 1999... Directed by Brian Singer, uh, kind of ushered in a new wave of superhero films, of comic book adaptation films, and the era that we're in now, the type of superhero movies we have now, you could argue really wouldn't have come about had that film not not only come out but been a success. Oh, excuse me. And then various films in the franchise have varied in quality and critical acclaim and usually they've been commercially successful as well but um the last film x-men apocalypse was in my opinion and also many other people's opinions a horrible horrible film um it was one of the low points of the franchise so i was tentatively you know i i was very hesitant about whether or not Dark Phoenix was going to be any good. Um, this is the second time that they've tried to ad- adapt the Jean Grey Dark Phoenix saga, which is one of the most beloved storylines of the original X-Men comics. But um, uh, but because of the events of the film Days of Futures Past, it basically wiped out the events from X3 the first time that they tried to do uh, the Dark Phoenix saga. Um, when I first saw the, the previews for this film, maybe six months ago, I was like, that looks decent. It looks like it's going to be better than X-Men Apocalypse. Um, it, it opened a few weeks ago and was getting horrendous reviews. It, it is on Rotten Tomatoes. It's the lowest rated you know, the worst reviewed film in the X-Men franchise. And it's, it's going to be, you know, it's considered a box office bomb. It is not making the money that they expected it to. So I pretty much was not planning on seeing it at all. I was like, okay, it's got, it's garbage and it's a crappy way to end the series. And, you know, it, the X-Men, characters are going to be recast and it's going to be rebooted when it's put into the Marvel Cinematic Universe sometime in the future. But um, I had this little voice in the back of my head nagging at me that if I didn't go see it, I was, you know, I was going to have this sense of not having completion with the, you know, this series that I've followed for 20 years. So begrudgingly, I went and saw it yesterday as a matinee. Um, I the big thing that really enticed me was uh, I'm part of the Regal Clown Co- Crown 
Club, uh, Regal Cinemas does this thing where if you know every time you go see movies you get points. Uh, after a while, if you accumulate points, you can get rewards such as free popcorn and soft drinks, and then free movie tickets. So I had a free ticket uh, because I I had just seen The Dead Don't Die the day before, and they let me know that I had a free ticket. So I was like, I'll wait. So that's what I basically was like. Well, I'm not going to enjoy uh, Dark Phoenix, so I might as well. If I'm going to see it, if I'm going to force myself to see it, a free ticket is the way to go. So I was going in, you know, fully expecting it to be awful, and then you know the the, the little pre pre opening credit prologue was was a bit clunky, but not terrible. And then the movie opened and, uh, you know, the first, uh, uh, big sequence where the, the X-Men rescues a space shuttle that's having trouble from space was actually pretty well done. And, you know, they, they, they did some really cool stuff with some some characters I like, primarily um, Nightcrawler, uh, portrayed in this film by Cody Smith McPhee, um, which uh, they did a great job with his makeup. Uh, I still really liked Alan Cumming uh, of his portrayal in X Two of Nightcrawler, but uh, you know that was you know fifteen sixteen years ago. Uh, oh. Excuse me. Uh, yeah, I really, I really like that Nightcrawler. Sort of a, a, a an underused X Men character, but uh, I really enjoy him. And uh, yeah, they did a great job with him. And uh, so the movie kind of unraveled. And then the you know while the the Dark Phoenix story is not only it, it doesn't go by how it was done in the comic, uh, it kind of does its own thing, and it's it's not this great grandiose story arc that it is in the comics, but it's also kind of its own thing in this film, and, uh, and it involves an alien race trying to get the power, and, you know, Jessica Chastain plays one of... One of the aliens, kind of the head alien, trying to trying to get this power, and um, you know, it's Sophie Turner who plays Jean Grey in this, sort of struggling with herself and trying to control this power, and also struggle with um, some things that Charles Xavier did when she was a child to try and protect her, but you know, wasn't completely honest with her, and. Uh, you know, some things happen, some, some, uh, relationships are, uh, damaged and severed, and, you know, one of the key characters from this, these past four films dies, uh, I won't give a spoiler in that, but, um, uh, I knew, I, I had actually, someone had sort of, uh, spoiled it for me beforehand, but I wasn't really that upset about it because I wasn't planning on seeing the movie at that point, but I was like, oh, okay, that person dies, all right. Um, but, um, you know, they did some, they do some interesting things with both uh, Jean Grey's character 
and Charles Xavier's character, and but also Magneto and Hank McCoy as far as like their relationships with each other and uh, even uh, Scott. God, I can't think of his last name. Uh, uh, but he plays Cyclops. Uh, Jean Grey's significant other. Um, you know, they do some interesting stuff with the characters. It is far from a great film, but it is also far from the tr- absolute train wreck that the all the reviews are making it out to be. Uh, I was... I, I will say, the first hour and 20 minutes, I was thoroughly entertained and captivated. Uh, towards the end, when there become, you know, the, there's sort of every, uh, every superhero film seems to have, you know, the giant climactic battle sequence. That's when I start to tune out, and this one was no different. I had one of those, but, um, you know, there's not that many battle scenes in it. There, there's this one at the end, and it's sort of smaller in scale than the the one that they that they had in X Men Apocalypse, and you know the stakes, while still huge in this, are much. Are, you know, the whole world wasn't at stake. Base the outcome of this battle wasn't going to determine the uh, the future of the entire world. So um, it was a little more realistic and. Uh, they did a nice little little wrap-up of the film. I don't think, or I know that when they filmed it, they weren't planning on this being the last one, but they did a decent job of wrapping it up. And uh, there, was a, there was a scene between uh, James McAvoy and, Eric, and uh, Michael Fassbender who, uh, that sort of echoed a scene with uh, Patrick Stewart and Sir Ian McKellen uh, from several X-Men films ago playing the same characters. So it was a nice little tip of the hat to the entire franchise. And uh, I think it was an okay way to sort of bow out. The only thing that was, uh, you know, would have been a nice little little touch for it would have been cameo by Hugh Jackman as Wolverine, but he he did say he was retired from it, and he kept true to his word. You know, Logan was the last film where he played Wolverine, and uh, yeah, so it was weird seeing an X-Men movie without the character of Wolverine at all, but uh, that's okay. So, yeah, I did not hate Dark Phoenix as much as I was expecting to. I did not. Um, I probably won't ever watch it again, but I it didn't leave a horrible taste in my mouth like I was expecting to. I would give I'd give Dark Phoenix a, a, a six out of out of ten. Um, the next film that I saw was Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die, and it was funny. Um, you know, uh, this movie was pretty pretty heavily marketed to mainstream and which surprised me when I saw that, you know, when I first started seeing it, uh, because a lot of people who are not familiar with Jim Jarmusch were talking about this film. They're like, Oh, this looks fantastic. This looks like a lot of fun. And I was very hesitant and, and I was very vocal with some of these people. And I said, hey, I don't know. You may want to wait and see. And they're like, no, it looks like it's going to be a blast. 
because I think the uh, the marketing department. I mean, first of all, I'm surprised that a you know a, a larger studio focus features took on a project like this and marketed it this way because uh, for those of you not familiar with Jim Jarmish, he is a, a fiercely independent uh, uh, director, writer, director who um, he's been working for 30 plus years, but his films are not, not mainstream accessible really at all. Um, uh, some of his more well-known films, Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, uh, coffee and cigarettes down by law. Um, uh, his, his last film, Only Lovers Left Alive, is, in my opinion, his best film. Um, but, you know, he's done a lot of anthology films. He also works with a lot of actors more than once. Uh, you know, he a lot of the actors who are in this have worked with him before. Uh, Bill Murray, Steve Buscemi, um... Sarah Driver, who is his partner, um, the RZA uh, from the Wu-Tang Clan, um, Tom Waits, they're all in this, they're all actors who have uh, worked with him before, and then, you know, some other respected independent actors, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Tilda Swinton, who was in this and was phenomenal in Only Lovers Left Alive, and she plays a predictably weird and very Tilda Swinton-esque character in this, but... Um, Chloe Savini uh, and Adam Driver are also in this, which I don't think either of them have worked with Jim Jarmusch before, but you know they did an adequate job. Um, but uh, th- I went into this movie expecting, first of all, expecting n- not to really enjoy it. Uh, I have a weird relationship with Jim Jarmusch. Uh, I look at Jim Jarmusch, oftentimes, the way I look at Neil Young, um, which, you know, not coincidentally, they collaborated on the film Dead Man, starring Johnny Depp, uh, you know, 20-something years ago. But um, I respect the hell out of Jim Jarmusch, and I really appreciate that he does his art exactly his own way, and I am really genuinely glad that he is still able to make art, and I think he's making important art. However, I don't actually enjoy most of what he does, but I will respect it, and then, and when I see one of his films playing, I will absolutely go see it in the movie theater because uh, I'm all about supporting independent artists, uh, regardless if it's to my taste. And, you know, every once in a while, something like Only Lovers Left Alive comes out, and it's fantastic, and I'm... You know, my my sense of uh, what creativity human beings can come up with is renewed. But uh, this was not the case with The Dead Don't Die. Um, it's sort of quasi-inspired by his, his reflection on the passing uh, of George Romero, you know, the filmmaker of the original Night of the Living Dead. While not the first zombie film, certainly the first film to really make zombie films uh, part of the popular consciousness. Uh, But Jim Jarmusch is not a horror director, does not have reverence for the genre. And also it wasn't really, this wasn't really a spoof or a satire. Um, 
it just really felt like he was going through the motions of making a zombie film while putting weird inside jokes. There's a there's a recurring joke, but it's I mean it wasn't funny the first time, and it's made reference to about four or five times in the film where uh, country singer Sturgill Simpson, who has a small role as a, as one of the zombies, um, he has this theme song called "The Dead Don't Die," and it keeps getting referenced by characters in the film and the and, and the movie and the song plays multiple times. And oddly enough, it's not on the the it's not on the soundtrack album that was released for the film. It was released separately as a single, but you can't get it on the soundtrack. But uh, you know that was one reference. Um, the RZA drives uh, what is essentially a UPS vehicle, but it's called WUPS because the RZA is the uh, main driving force be- between behind the rap group the Wu Tang Clan, which is it's the second time in a Jim Jarmusch film where. Uh, he's been referenced as who he is in real life because he plays himself in the f- anthology film Coffee and Cigarettes. Um, you know, these are all actors that I really like and just kind of doing really, really nothing. Uh, and it, if you think that's an oversimplification, if you see the film, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's mostly people driving around having conversations about nothing. And or commenting on uh, actions that have that have happened, you know. Uh, at one point, a couple people are killed in a diner, and you know the the police, played by Adam Driver, uh, Bill Murray, and uh, Chloe Savini, Sevigny, actually, I think is how it's pronounced. But and they one by one arrive, and they each comment on it and say the exact same thing, and it's sort of like. You can even feel when it's happening that Jim Jarmusch is kind of elbowing you in the side, being like, see, he said the exact same thing that Bill Murray said. It's funny, right? But it's not funny. It's just, it's, it's boring. This is an incredibly boring film. Um, and I, I will also say not very well made. I mean, it's a very low budget film, which is fine. Uh, but the effects, you know, the, the biggest thing about, so to kill zombies, uh, you have to sever the head from the body. And in this film, they choose not to have blood in there, but sort of like a weird dust. And every time that happens, uh, you know, dust falls, comes out of their neck. And it's a really poorly executed digital effect. And yeah, any of the effects that are digital in this film are just, just look abysmal. Um, I don't know if that was done intentionally or not, because like I said, it's not... It's not cheeky enough to be, you know, corny or slapstick. It's just... I don't know. It's like a... It, it feels like I'm watching a, a, a student film, except for it's made by a man in his 60s. Um... Yeah, I, I really can't recommend this film to anyone. I mean, if you're a diehard Jim Jarmusch fan, you're going to see it anyways, so you don't need my recommendation one way or another. Um, if you're fans of any of the actors that are in this, I'd say give it a pass. Um, I, just because it, 
they're wasted in in the roles that they're in. This is, there's there's really hardly anything entertaining in this film. The only thing that I really enjoyed, uh, Tom Waits plays a you know a, a homeless hermit, and he he's the one who kind of offers some commentary throughout about society, and you know it's a it's a it's a great Tom Waits role. And I'm a huge Tom Waits fan, so I got like a little bit of a chuckle out of that. But um, really, it's it's not worth the price of admission. You know, I paid twelve dollars to see this, and I feel like Jim Jarmusch owes me about eleven dollars and fifty cents back. Um, yeah, I would give The Dead Don't Die a, a four out of ten. You know, uh, it, it was just kind of a okay. That's that's what I expected. Um, and, you know, having said that, I'm sure if Jim Jarmusch uh, makes another film, I'll go see it. But, yeah, this one was uh, not, uh, didn't didn't really grab me at all. Uh, the next movie I saw was Brightburn, uh, which, it, it's it's kind of a comic book movie without a, uh, without a comic book. Um, in a nutshell, like the simplest way that I've explained it to people is, it's basically the story of Superman if Superman became bad instead of good. Um, it, it, having said that, this is not based on the DC Comics hero Superman at all. It's it's a, a farmer couple, husband and wife, who cannot conceive a child, and then one night a spaceship crash lands on their farm, and there's a baby boy in there, and they raise them the boy as their own. And when he's an adolescent, uh, something starts calling to him and it's, you know, it's, it's the alien ship that they, that he landed in that they've kept in their barn. And it's basically urging him to follow all his, all his impulses and, um, a little by little, he starts uh, using his powers uh, to follow these impulses rather than to help people, and just ends up hurting a couple people, and then eventually he just goes on this this violent killing spree. Um, you know, he has the superhuman strength, he has the power of flight, um, he is seemingly invulnerable, you know, at at one point he, he gets shot from very close range in the back of the head and it doesn't kill him. And then, you know, he, he invokes his wrath on the person who shot him. Uh, it was written by two of James Gunn's brothers, uh, James Gunn, uh, known very well for, uh, directing the first two guardians of the galaxy movies and, doing a lot of independent horror films before that. And he also did this quirky uh, black comedy uh, superhero film several years ago called Super, starring Rain Wilson. And it's revealed in sort of the end credits of this film that this takes place in the same universe. So whether or not that'll get tied in together or not remains to be seen. But um, it was... uh, I don't know. It was... It was entertaining enough, I guess. Uh, I wasn't sure what to expect. I mean, it wasn't quite... 
compelling enough. I, I I never really had uh, a connection with uh, Brandon Byer, the 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 young boy, the character. Uh, he, he, I guess he he kind of turns evil far too soon, and there's you don't really ha- ever have any empathy for him, and he's not a compelling enough villain to really want to root for him. And it, it's weird that you can't decide on a tone because it, it, it can be like a sort of gentle coming-of-age film and then becomes this, at times, very gory, violent, uh, you know, superhero, or not superhero, supervillain film. So it was kind of kind of all over the place. Uh, I, it was an interesting premise that was kind of squandered in the execution. It wasn't... Uh, it was a whole lot of nothing when all was said and done. Um, it was, you know, the effects were decent in it, and, uh, you know, uh, acting was decent as well. But, I don't know. At the end of the day, I, I was hoping for more from the premise and didn't really get it. Uh, yeah, I'd give, uh, give Brightburn a five out of 10, uh, not a complete loss, but not great either. Now the next movie, uh, uh, is stand by me, which, uh, is another river Phoenix f- film. One of the first films that he was in actually, um, I believe he was 12 at the time, but it was, it's an adaptation of, of a Stephen King novella, The Body. Um, you know, the studio changed the name of it for the film because they were worried that it would either, you know, be construed as a horror film, which it's not, or some sort of sex romp movie, which it's also not. Um, this was the first film adaptation of a Stephen King book that wasn't in the horror genre. Um, it's directed by Rob Reiner, one of his first films, and, you know, stars young cast, uh, you, you know, w- River Phoenix, Will Wheaton, Corey Feldman, and Jerry O'Connell. And this was Jerry O'Connell's first film. Um, you know, I saw that, I first saw this film when I was around the age that the, the actors are in the film. I was, you know, 11 or 12 when I saw it. It was one of those movies that, I saw it at my best friend's house because it was a rated R film. I wasn't allowed to watch rated R movies at that age. And uh, I remember it being, it was talked about at school because, you know, there's a lot of profanity in this movie. It's funny because by today's standards, uh, it's it's a fairly tame film. Even though it is rated R, it's, you know, it's mostly just talk. Um, but 1986, it was... Uh, it was crazy that there, there was a movie with kids swearing this much in it. Uh, and it, you know, it takes place in 1959. So, uh, it, you know, it's a slice of, of life of America, a bygone era. Um, it's four friends growing up in a small Oregon town in the, in the Stephen King novel. It, it takes place in Maine as most of Stephen King's books do. But, for some unknown reason, it was switched to Oregon for the filming. But uh, and they hear about the whereabouts about the body of a boy their age who was hit by a train, and then they go on a uh, a journey over a weekend to go find the body. And then 
there's a group of older boys led by Kiefer Sutherland who are also out to find the body to claim the reward. And, you know, it's really about the bond of young men that they have at this age right before their interest in, in girls takes over. And, you know, I, it was one of those movies that was always uh, kind of held in a really high regard growing up and revisiting it for probably the first time in seven or eight years. I still enjoyed it, but it didn't quite have the impact that it did when I was younger. And I was like, all right, it's not quite the, it doesn't ha- have the dramatic hold that I was expecting it to. It's, you know, it's not a bad film by any means. It's a well-crafted film, but it's a little, takes itself a little bit too seriously. And I think it thinks it's making more profound points, dramatic points than it actually is. But, um, you know, the, the four young men give great performances and, um, you know, it, it's funny because Will Wheaton's character kind of grew up uh, to be similar to his character. You know, he his character's a writer in it, and Will Wheaton is a blogger, and, um, you know, the characters of Corey Feldman and Jerry O'Connell played, they both kind of turn out to be screw-ups, and, you know, you could make similar assessments of both of their uh, uh, their professional and personal lives in the years since. And, you know, um, River Phoenix's character, Chris Chambers, is referred to having been killed and, you know, died far too young. And uh, unfortunately, that really happened to River Phoenix, too. So it was interesting, kind of the parallels and whatnot between what the four characters went through in the story and what happened to the actors in real life. But... Um, yeah, you know, Stand By Me is a classic, but um, I don't know. I don't know how much it'll actually stand the test of time over over the next, you know, hundred years or whatnot. I enjoyed it, just didn't enjoy it quite as much as I used to. You know, I'd give I'd give Stand By Me a solid seven out of ten, and then um, I sort of wasn't planning on doing starting a Disney classics thing, but um, I recently joined a, the uh, a Disney movie club where uh, it's like the old Columbia House Records and tapes where you, you know they can send you a movie a month. Um, I'm opting most often not to, but you know their introductory package was too much to pass up because I think I got six movies for a dollar each, and so. There are a lot of old classic Disney movies that I like. So I started uh, with them, and, you know, this morning I actually started watching Pinocchio, one of the other ones, so I'm going to go through that. But, um, yeah, I watched The Rescuers, and uh, it was a it was a two-pack with The Rescuers Down Under. They were in the same package. So I had never seen The Rescuers Down Under, so I wanted to revisit The Rescuers, and... You know, after I watched it, I just said, okay, well, I'm going to watch The Rescuers Down Under. But um, this was from the the uh, late 70s. I, you know, I remember really loving this as a, as a kid, and it was pretty good. Uh, it certainly 
darker in tone than a lot of Disney films, but I remembered it being dark in tone. Uh, it's interesting to me how much, because Don Bluth uh, was one of the animators on it, and he went on to uh, run his own studio later, and uh, I, I'm a big fan of almost all of the work that Don Bluth did separately, but how much thematically and visually uh, this looks like, well, particularly his film The Secret of Nim. Uh, with the anthropomorphic mice and the little worlds that they inhabit. Um, there also, there was a lot of voices used in this who are, you know, were familiar to me with, from Disney's Robin Hood and, uh, Disney's Fox and the Hound, which are uh, two, two of the films that I've always loved from Disney that, uh, I, I will probably review coming up too. But, uh, um, yeah, it was, uh, it's a fun movie. It's, uh, it's, it's a pretty low stakes, the story, uh, but it is, you know, a young girl is kidnapped and then these mice go to rescue her from, uh, from, a uh, a riverboat in Louisiana that's guarded by two crocodiles. Um, it's interesting how it's done because there's two crocodile, the two crocodiles who are in this, you know, are anthropomorphic. And while they don't speak, they can kind of communicate with the other animals and whatnot. And in The Rescuers Down Under, there's a whole slew of of uh, crocodiles that play in the story, but they're not anthropomorphic. They're just regular crocodiles, And as is an eagle that plays a big part in The Rescuers Down Under. So it's weird when Disney chooses to make some of the, char- the animal characters human-like and some not. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly looks dated and it's it's certainly quaint for a Disney movie which I think is part of its charm but you know I still really enjoyed The Rescuers and I love that hand-drawn animation and it's amazing to me how how sloppy some of the animation is in this like you can see jagged lines on a lot of the outlines of the characters and I don't think that was done on purpose I think it was just um because they were cranking out a you know they're working on a lot of movies simultaneously um Whereas the rescuers down under, uh, the animation has certainly improved because that, that came out in 1992, and it looks like that era's animation. So it was interesting to see uh, 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 Bernard and Bianca, the two the two mice, uh, in a newer, crisper animation. The one one uh, kind of trivia note: the the rescuers down under was the very first film to be done completely uh, with a computer where no camera was involved at all. Uh, it is mostly hand-drawn animation still, but it was done, you know, uh, none of it was actually filmed. It was the first film that was done completely uh, without the use of cameras. So, um, I mean, that's sort of a footnote now, and a lot of the computer effects that were used in it definitely looked 25 years old. Um, this was sort of right after the success of The Little Mermaid and The Beauty and the Beast, and this didn't quite become the hit that those films were. Um, this is also significant because this is the very first uh, cinematic sequel, cinematically released sequel to a Disney film that they had ever done. Um, and you know, it's a similar, it's very similar type of story to the first one. This 
this time it's a young boy who's been kidnapped and but he's in Australia um so there's a little bit of you know sort of quote unquote exotic animals in it because it's Australian but for the most part it's the same basic story and uh yeah i mean it was cute it was pleasant enough but you know being 43 there wasn't a whole lot that i was going to get out of uh, seeing a, a 27 year old Disney movie at this point, uh, you know, I certainly had nostalgia for the first rescuers cause I saw that when I was a child, but saw this one as an adult. So, you know, I would give, I would give the rescuers, the original film, a seven out of 10 and uh, I would give the rescuers down under uh, a five out of 10. Uh, I mean, it's fine. Nothing wrong with it, but, uh, it doesn't really stand out as a Disney film on its own, it's sort of a meh movie. And, uh, yeah. So if you have young kids and you want to introduce them to some Disney movies, that's definitely not the way I would start. They'd really have to love the first film to be like, all right, well they made another one. You want to watch that? But yeah, otherwise I'd be like, man, it's not really a necessary movie. So those are the films that I saw over the last week or so. Thank you again for listening. And I'll talk to you soon.